Hey, hey, welcome back to the show. How are you finding it? My first few guests have been amazing and super intentional in terms of the content and the topics that they brought to the table. This is for um, a very good reason, and that is because the things around body image and how we see ourselves in the mirror, how we see ourselves on camera, our eating habits and finding freedom from food has been such a big part of my own journey from like a really young age. And I kind of alluded to some of this in the episode where I shared some of my story. And what I wanted to do today was basically confess. Confess what it's like to be a secret binge eater. And I do this not because I am self-indulgent and woe is me and I want you to understand me. I do this because I wish I had heard someone talking so openly about what it means to have this unwanted habit behind closed doors in a way that was without shame and guilt because honestly I thought it was just me. I thought no one else would understand. I thought no one else was going through this. I thought no one else was greedy like me or lazy or weak and deceitful in the way that I was doing things so secretively. So I do this in the hope that if you resonate on any level because you too display certain behaviours along these lines, then you're not alone. It's not just you. There are more people out there who are harbouring secrets around the way they behave than we'll ever know about. And in my experience, the truth will set you free. So a lot of my content is very confessional, whether through this podcast or if you're following me on social media, some of my posts are very real and raw. And that's for a reason, because it sets me free. And in doing so, in sharing some of this stuff, I hope it sets you free too. So in episode two, I shared with you a chapter of my story and I alluded in there to the fact that food was a big comfort to me. And when I look at where that started, it was probably a combination of being on an 80s diet in the UK back in the 80s. I think microwave meals, frozen foods, the likes of Iceland, uh, which was a, a frozen food store were the kind of rave and it was affordable, it was convenient. I had working parents, my dad worked day and night shifts, um, four on, four off. My mum worked nine to five, Monday to Friday. So we went to a childminders after school when we were in primary school. By we, I mean me and my younger sister, Lisa, who's four years younger than me. I also mentioned I had um, a pretty full-on gymnastics kind of hobby where we trained for three hours a night, for three nights a week. So when I reflect, 
you know, I went to school on a belly of probably frosted cornflakes and full fat milk and then had a white cheese or ham sandwich, um, probably a toffee yoghurt. They were my favourite back in the day. I remember Fox's classic biscuits being another favourite or penguins and a packet of crisps like Skips, you know, the prawn cocktail Skips or uh, What's It's or something like that. So that was my staple lunchtime. There was no fruit inside. There was no whole grains. And this is no criticism of my parents. This was just our diet back then. It was convenient and it was affordable and um, it was just what it was. But I would come home from school and would have my dinner Oftentimes that would be, oh, my favourite was a tin of macaroni cheese. <laughs> or um, or we used to have potato waffles with baked beans or spaghetti hoops or spaghetti alphabets and sausages or Finder's Crispy Pancakes. Who remembers Finder's Crispy Pancakes? Cheese and beans was my favourite. So it was a combination of all this crappy food, right? And you think you've got a growing child who is also very active, all the sports, running around in the playground at school and then going and training for three hours. I'm talking hardcore conditioning and tumbles and like on the go. And I remember often saying I'm hungry, like genuinely feeling hungry and often being told, no, you've just eaten or no, your dinner's in an hour or no, you're not having anything, go to bed. And (laughs) I remember very much that feeling that being told no used to conjure up inside of me. I didn't like being told no. (laughs) And I still don't like being told no today. I mean, I don't know who does, but I've always had this like rebellious side to me. And I think I was just a resourceful kid. And I thought, okay, if you're gonna tell me no, I'm going to, by hook or by crook, find a way to have a stash of food so that when I am hungry, I can eat. And and I think that's where it started, really. So I used to stash biscuits because when I was hungry, I knew I could at least go there when I was told no. And what we're taught when we come out of our mother's womb is when you're hungry, you scream, you get a boob, you get satiated, you burp and sleep and fart and are all content right so there's a lot of attachment from a very young age around food being a comfort and it's also human need right it's a human instinct to eat and that hunger cue is very much a warning signal your brain sending your belly a little rumble in the tumble to say hey we're empty you better go get some food And that's what we're doing. And like I said, kids are resourceful. So I just learned that, you know, I could find ways of preparing for those eventualities where I felt like I was hungry and I wasn't allowed any snacks or anything like that. We know now that a diet of white flowery goods and cereals and chocolate bars and crisps isn't the best diet for a child to be growing up on it's not sustainable in terms of energy so it's no wonder that there are cravings for perhaps more sugary foods because they're not actually getting a nutritional uh, varied diet but 
that's okay. We know that now. It's not, again, no finger pointing, no blame. It's just in hindsight, we can tell that, right? And then I got a bit older, 10, 11, subject to a bit of bullying at school. And now I had a bit of freedom because I had to find my own way home from school. I didn't have a childminder anymore. I was to get the bus home. And so I had a pound for the bus, but ever resourceful, (laughs) I decided that I could walk home still get home before my mum and dad and actually be able to buy four bars of chocolate because back in them days a pound went a long way so I used to get a Mars bar a Milky Way a Twix and a Snickers something like that it's probably a marathon back then right and I'd eat them on on the way home or I'd maybe eat two or three and stash another one in my little stash and um, what I learned there was actually it doesn't matter what crappy feelings you have at school when you feel very excluded and ostracized almost from like the trendy crowd because actually when I can be with my chocolate I just feel better I feel comforted something makes it all feel better and so I learned the association there between eat the chocolate feel comforted So it's no longer about a hunger, like a genuine hunger. This is more a a need to feel accepted and loved and like I belong somewhere. And actually the only way I could feel comforted was to feed my face with chocolate on the way home. And then you get to the point where everyone at school seems to be on a diet, which when you're 13 or 14 means starve yourself all day and make up for it when you get home and have dinner. And... A friend of mine and I actually managed to get hold of some slimming pills and they would literally make, make, and they would make you feel less hungry, but they would also wear off at which point you felt ravenous. So I had this really skewed relationship with food from a really young age and It was just set to get worse, right? So I had my first relationship, serious relationship when I was 16. He was a year older than me. He was earning money. He had a car. So I was walking less, using my bike less. I'd finished gymnastics by this point. And he would treat me to dinners out or we would get a lot of takeaways. His mum used to make a lot of home-cooked comfort food. So we'd often eat out twice in a day and... um, I fell in love, right? So so now food was less about being comforted and more about just being happy and content. And plus we'd started partying, so there was a lot of booze involved, a lot of late nights, a lot more takeaways and eating kebabs on, on the way home from a night out, all the food in the morning for a hangover. So it just became part of our relationship and then he broke my heart (laughs) like literally broke my heart I remember the moment he finished with me so well I crumbled in the corner of my mum and dad's kitchen they were away they'd left me with the house for the first time I was 18 so here I was alone and feeling very unloved unwanted rejected not good enough and you guessed it my friend food was there in that moment when I was otherwise alone and this time rather than feeling comforted 
or feeling content, it helped me numb the pain. The pain of that heartbreak was numbed through eating. So in the time that I was sat there with a takeaway or with my chocolate or tub of ice cream, I wasn't feeling pain because I was with, I guess, an old friend that never judged me, never never did anything but was just there for me, which sounds crazy to say out loud, but I think in hindsight that's what it was doing. So I had many, many more moments where I felt the need to numb out, especially through my 20s. I mean, he and I got back together, we were on off for the next three years, but it was never the same again. I'd lost all trust. I was on hyper alert when other women were around us. I was paranoid when we weren't together. And yeah, food was there. Food just helped me numb out from all of those awkward, icky, horrible feelings. And was just coming up for my 21st birthday, I think, and when we finally ended. And that's when I really started to gain weight, year on year through my 20s. And I don't think my binge eating got so bad, but my just general lifestyle was terrible. <laughs> so I didn't know how to cook. I had no interest in cooking. It was microwave meals. It was takeaways. It was packet of crisps and a pickled egg at the pub when I was working and you know there was no nutritional value I was very much in a bit of self-destruct I think through my 20s I was in and out of some other relationships I bought a house with a guy that I was with for a while and then I ended that and kept the house on myself and so I had another short period where I was alone and um, was very happy to have a closed door and a safe space where I could just eat my way through my feelings of not feeling good enough. And that's when I turned 30 shortly after that and had this moment where I was in Tenerife with all my girlfriends, my mum, my sister, I was surrounded by so much love and fun and laughter and we were getting ready for a night out in and I was just looking at myself in the mirror and I was just hating on what I saw. I literally hated everything about what I saw in the mirror. I despised what was looking back at me. All I saw was fat. All I saw was just, it was just disgusting. And I allowed the tears to come. I was probably a little tipsy to be fair. But despite those really loud voices that were telling me that I wasn't good enough and that no one was going to love me, I had this other voice that spoke to me and said, there is a better way to think and feel about yourself and this is not the way it has to be. And in that moment, thank goodness I heard that voice because I decided, I made a decision in that moment that this was not gonna be the way I would live my life through my 30s. And I would love to sit here now and tell you that that was the end of it and that I miraculously woke up the next day and loved what I saw in the mirror and no longer needed to turn to food. But it was not to be. And my 30s have been probably more prevalent because of how much focus I've had and determination I've had around actually overcoming some of the challenges I've had around food and my body. But the focus, if you like, was probably shifted towards my career in my 30s because I'd done all right up until that point. I was leading a team of 30 people. It was a technical team of very technical people and I never considered myself technical. 
but I did love the whole leadership side of things and people management side. So I had some imposter syndrome that crept up in my career from an early age and I never felt like I quite fit, but I still did all right. And that's in hindsight because I was always a bit of an overachiever. I wanted to do well at school, so I did actually knuckle down and really work hard towards my GCSEs and my A-levels. I always wanted to do well at work, even if I didn't really know what I was doing. (laughs) And I always pushed on and asked for the promotion and asked for the new jobs. And I had many different jobs in my 20-year career at the same company, which meant it was very varied and I was always making new relationships And it also meant that I never felt like I was quite as technical and as well versed in a lot of this stuff as the next person that had perhaps done the job for 15, 20 years already. And I got nominated for this leadership development program that I'd really wanted to be on for a couple of years now and found myself on a week long training course in Switzerland with 60 other really ambitious, high-achieving peers, colleagues from around the world. And we are thrown into these various um, situations where your leadership skills come under some scrutiny. And what became very apparent in that contained environment was my uncomfortability with speaking up in meetings. There was literally nowhere to hide. I was exposed. I felt very naked, actually. And it wasn't for lack of having anything to say. I, in my mind, I could assess what was going on and know exactly how that person over there was feeling and how that person over there, what they were really trying to say. I just kind of had this knowing But I couldn't ever open my mouth and contribute to the conversation because I had this voice in my head that was saying, don't be stupid. You are going to look like a right mug if you say that. And this voice was horrible. The voice was literally putting me off. Like it was almost like my my jaw was wired shut with this crippling negative voice that was wearing around in my mind. And I had nowhere to run and hide. I couldn't go to my trusted food it you know I had to be a grown-up in that moment and suck it up and it was one of the facilitators that actually took me to one side at one point and said what's going on for you because she had seen something in me that was a bit of a internal battle and I literally burst into tears which wasn't something I did very regularly at all with anyone and explained to her what was going on in my head and she suggested I I get a book called Taming Your Gremlin and it was a self-help book it was the first self-help book that I bought and it made a lot of sense (laughs) because in here was like someone talking about that voice that I just described as if it was you know pretty normal and in most people and therefore I wasn't alone and actually you got to kind of give it a character and a colour and a name and a voice and kind of see it as separate to you and that really helped because that was the start of my awareness I guess of the thought process so I was aware of this voice but I just thought it was me and I had a couple of other scenarios on this training course on that week 
where I was put into a team and we were given a task and we had to do like a role play thing in front of everyone else. And I just wanted the ground to open up and swallow me whole and like just suck me away. So I didn't have to be there with all those eyes on me, with all this expectation for me to say something and for me to get it right and potentially say something stupid and look bad. Like it was, it was crippling. Literally, it was like someone had their hands around my throat and was preventing me from saying anything. Now, apparently I got through that task. I don't even remember. It was like a blur. Stuff, genius stuff still came out of my mouth. But in my head, I just wanted to disappear. I wanted the ground to swallow me up. I cannot express the strength of that feeling. I just wanted to be anywhere but there. And that's when I realised I probably needed a bit more help. And I remember thinking I probably need to go and see someone. But my focus was very much on, well, if I wasn't so overweight and so paranoid and conscious about what I look like, then maybe I'll feel better. And so I was still very focused on finding someone that could help me crack this bloody eating habit that I had, that I couldn't seem to crack on my own, wasn't working by going on a diet because that just seemed to make it worse. And I was searching for how can I lose weight and keep it off? Because my experience with dieting was lose some weight, regain it and some. And this psychotherapist came up in the local area. She was also a hypnotherapist and she specialised in helping women lose weight and keep it off. So I went along to see her and after sharing my life story, probably in a little bit more detail than I've just done with you, she told me that she didn't need to see me for my eating habits. She needed to see me for my low self-esteem, lack of trust and generalised anxiety disorder due to childhood trauma. And I was in complete shock and denial because I was like, I haven't had trauma. I was bullied at school, sure, but... And from that moment on, I kind of had a better idea of what I was dealing with when I really understood that actually eating food was a symptom of my anxiety. It all started to make a lot more sense and I could almost separate myself from the behaviour and and take a, like an outside-in view on that and what was going on. And this was really the start of my healing. And that, that was, I was 33, 34 by the time I... I went to seek help in that way and I've never looked back since but still the worst was yet to come and I had been pushing and striving for a promotion for a few years and I had this conversation one day where this guy just offered me a promotion and a six-figure salary which was actually a, a significant pay rise to come and work with him and it was the dream job it came with a huge risk because it was a project so there was no guarantee of a job at the end of it and it was very much outside of my sort of where I'd grown up in that company over the last 18 years and was exposure at the most senior level because our sponsors was the CEO of the company and I would be responsible for the budget for setting up the team getting them operationally up and running recruiting a team and indeed setting the strategy and direction for that team too 
And after sort of sleeping on it and considering the risks involved, I decided to go for it. Now, this was at a time where I had also just signed up with my first health coach and had lost a couple of stone by counting macros and doing a lot of CrossFit and running. And I was really into my exercise and was really enjoying my diet and felt like this was a lifestyle, albeit I was tracking every single morsel of food that went into my mouth. So I didn't feel restricted in terms of I could eat anything as long as it fit within my macros, but I was obsessively capturing every single um, piece of food that went in my mouth. So there was still that real focus on the food itself. And when I accepted the job, that involved a commute to London and often traveling to Zurich like once a month for a few days at a time and also going to the east coast of America for a couple of weeks at a time. So I had this great time traveling business class and like eating out in all the nice swanky places in Switzerland and Boston and New York. But my routine was massively shaken up and all of a sudden I can't train as much as I was. I don't have that routine to be at CrossFit three mornings a week and I didn't have the energy at the weekends to run 10k. So what happened was my weight didn't start to go back on, it just sort of plateaued at that level and I got comfortable with some of the bad habits creeping back in. But also as we recruited members of the team who were on my new level, those feelings of unworthiness and not good enough really started to creep in. I was recruiting people with three PhDs. I did not feel good enough sat next to them in meeting rooms and I found myself getting mute again. I couldn't speak out, I couldn't challenge people when I felt like it was worth challenging. I couldn't call people out on their own BS when I was sat there thinking that's BS. And I had this meeting where I was running this project and it was with our exec sponsors. So these are senior people in the company and my boss at the time was meant to be there but just before said, "Oh, I'm not going to make it, so can you take the can you run the meeting?" And I had this dread flood through me. I didn't feel prepared, but I was like, you just got to show up and do your best. So I showed up and I did my best, but my best looked like telling the truth. (laughs) Like the project wasn't going as well as it should have been going. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you anything other than the truth because I'm all about keeping it real. But they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear the embellished story where everything was just fine and we were on track and we were going to deliver regardless. So that meeting was actually cut short and I felt relief getting off the phone. Thankfully, it was just a phone call. But I also felt like they were going to be talking about me and saying, who is this? She's not good enough. Like, what is she doing in that job? And I kid you not, I went into the depths of despair and couldn't get out of bed for a week. I phoned in sick for a week and literally back in came my old friend food. And I would say I went on a six month binge after that and I regained the two stone I'd lost in a short space of time and my anxiety didn't recover for a long time either. It was only actually when we got news that our exec sponsor had retired early suddenly that we would probably be 
disbanded or put into a different department that I realised that my time here had probably come to an end. And indeed, I was put at risk of redundancy, which was actually a blessing in disguise because I had a chance to really look at what I was doing with my life and what I wanted to do with my life. And I just knew that I wanted to help other people that had experienced this relationship with food and their body and anxiety. So for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. Now, I had the best send-off from that company and I have very fond memories as well as the sort of horror stories that I tell. But I have never looked back. That is for sure. I've never looked back. I know I'm meant to be doing this work in the world. However, (laughs) I had no idea about the level of fear and anxiety that was still yet to come. So I had this period of about five or six months where it was just like pure bliss. You know, it was like a long holiday. I didn't have to get up and go to work. I could go to yoga during the day. I could do my CrossFit at the time of day that I wanted to do it. And I just felt so free and so happy and content. I could be at home more. I didn't have to travel all the time. Uh, I could meet friends for lunch. I could be with my sister and her kids. It was just wonderful. And I actually naturally lost some weight. I think taking myself out of that stressful environment, I naturally didn't need to eat so much. I was taking better care of myself. I was feeling good naturally. I was getting out for walks. We were talking about getting a dog when we came back from our travels. Um, We had three weeks planned in South America. And yeah, I lost some weight. And then we got the dog and I knuckled down to set my business up. And back came the anxiety because I had to put myself out there (laughs) on social media, something I'd never done before. And I had to talk about things that I didn't feel necessarily qualified to talk about. Sure, I had my own experience, but I wasn't qualified as such. So I set about doing what I typically used to do, which was, okay, well, I'll get a qualification in nutrition and lifestyle coaching then. And while I'm at it, I'll do a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner's course as well, because that's going to really help and look good on my CV. And when I had the level of knowledge that a nutrition and lifestyle coach had, but I still couldn't sort my own eating habits out, I decided I need to go deeper for my own purposes. And I started a eating psychology diploma with the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, who I used to tap into their podcast, actually. They used to have one five years ago. And I used to listen to all of their clients that would come on and talk about their own victories with their eating habits and being able to turn around that dependence on food. And so I just knew when this course came up, it was £5,000, but I knew that I had to go and do it because this was going to help me first and foremost. And when I mastered my eating habits, I'll be able to help everyone else. And oh my goodness, it was a deep dive into the depths of some of this stuff that I've already talked about to really help me understand where the habit came from and actually that we all have a relationship with food in one way or another and it just depends on what happens and the experiences you have in life as to how that relationship shapes out 
And actually, once you've got to the point where you've had like a strained relationship with food, perhaps for a couple of decades, like I had, that it wasn't necessarily going to heal itself overnight. And I think what's fair to say is I still have moments today when I want to reach for the chocolate and I want to just be on my own when I eat it and I just want to numb out or I want to feel good and comforted. I just want to escape from the reality of life and just be with myself for a moment. I still do that today, I'm not going to lie. However, it happens less so today than it ever has done and I recover a lot quicker. So it may just be a moment where I have the need to go on the hunt for some chocolate and I have it and then I'm done for a few weeks. Or it might be that I do it in other ways. Like I'll say to Adam, oh, let's just get some treats in for this weekend. And therefore it's like an acceptable, it's not in secret so much, but it's still kind of sneaky in the way that it's manipulating the situation to kind of get what I want otherwise the majority of the time we eat healthy home-cooked food from scratch I walk the dog every single day I get my activity and my movement even through lockdown and I have all the tools from my studies from my experience that I need to interrupt that pattern of reaching for food and instead to just sit with my emotions let them ride out and then get on with my day. Because if there's one thing that is super clear to me now, it's that if I've spent 30 years of my life effectively using food to numb out feelings that were uncomfortable, then the only antidote to that is surely to not reach for the food when those uncomfortable emotions come up. And just be with them and that uncomfortability. And you know what? That uncomfortability doesn't last long. It always passes. And there's nothing particularly sexy about any of that. But it is where I've been able to see and notice the biggest difference in my behaviour. And see how over time this can only improve further and further. So it's a journey that I need to have a lot more patience with myself with than I have ever had before. And it's one that over time I trust will continue to improve and get better and better. And the more I learn, the more I can share with you. And if you have got this far and you resonate with anything that I've said, or maybe you recognise something from your story that has led you to do what you do today that you hadn't noticed before, I would love to hear from you. Because honestly, hearing your stories and your aha moments off the back of hearing mine really helps me show up and share this real and raw conversation that I really didn't want to have. (laughs) Um, If I'm honest really didn't want to have had so much resistance about this episode but I'm so glad I've done it it feels quite cathartic to get it off my chest so thank you so much for listening I have every intention to record another solo episode where I talk about my turning my back on restrictive dieting and the part that that played in my recovery to date and 
I hope you'll tune in again for that. In the meantime, if you recognize these behaviors in yourself and are really looking for the tools that will help you literally be with your emotions rather than reach for food, I invite you to check out the Initiation Members Club, which is my low-cost membership where every month I'm running a short course that is going to give you all the tools, all the awareness you need to really take your recovery to that next level. So if that's something you're interested in, head to the show notes where I'll stick the link and you you can join us at any time and you'll get information about the current program that I'm running as well as all the other goodness that you can get as soon as you get in so I'd love to see you in there otherwise thank you so much for being here I love that you're tuning in and would love to hear from you with your experience feel free to email me I'm emma at emmajclayton.com otherwise I'll speak to you soon take care Thank you.